0: Hi everyone, welcome to Seeking Witchcraft. It's me, your host, Ashley, and today I have on a special guest, Tom. Tom is going to be talking a little bit about a more advanced topic, the Greek magical papyri, which is a collection of ancient magical texts that have influenced magical practitioners today. Tom has given presentations on this topic before, so I'm super stoked that he's on the show today to speak about this with the listeners. So Tom, welcome. Please introduce yourself.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so, yeah, my name's Tom. I'm a classicist. So I studied um, classics at classic University and um, well, I worked on the Greek magical papyri, doing research on them. Um, I'm also a magical practitioner. I'm a Gardnerian witch um, and just in my personal practice do a bit of everything. So I've um, worked with these texts both from an academic and a magical perspective, and I just think they're brilliant. And I'm very excited to be able to nerd out about them with you.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm excited for you to talk about this. So when I was kind of asking people like, hey, like, you know, do you, anybody has a topic they want to talk about? Tom was like, oh, I'll talk about this. And I'm like, I have no idea what that is. Perfect. So now this is my chance to learn all about the Greek magical papyri because I have no idea what this is. But when he's talked a little bit about it and how it's influenced magical practitioners today, I was like, mm, I'm excited to hear about this topic.
1: Thank you. So the I mean, first, first place to start is what are the Greek magical papyri? And um So they are a collection of magical texts written on papyrus, hence the name papyri, that were found in Egypt. They're largely written in Greek and the collection that we have today wasn't actually put together by the ancient Egyptians. They were actually collected by a German scholar named Karl Preissendanz in the 1920s and have since been republished in an English edition by this guy called Betz, which is the one that most magicians work from today. So already we're not looking at a collection of texts put together by magicians. Rather, it's kind of like all these scraps of things that look vaguely magical have been put together by scholars. The papyri themselves date from the 2nd century BCE through to about the 5th century CE. So uh, most of them from about the 4th 5th, 5th century CE. So sort of three, 400 AD CE. And that span of about 700 years. And it's all the magical texts we found from that period. So at this time, um, Egypt had been a Roman province without a pharaoh for nearly 500 years. Um, so it means whilst there is Egyptian magic in these texts, it's not pure Egyptian magic in sort of square quotes. And also at this time, paganism was in decline. So this is very much kind of underground, weird, syncretic, mixed up form of magic. But it's quite brilliant as a result. We talk about who wrote. One of the first questions that's important when you look at these texts is sort of who wrote them, who was doing this magic. And the honest answer is we don't really know. We're fairly certain that some of them were priests, and the reason for this is that we call them the Greek Magical Papyri. But actually, some of the only language on there isn't Greek. There's another language called Demotic, which was an Egyptian language, and at this period, that was only known to the priests of the temples. And these, this was the sort of the last pagan temples that were open. So we know that some priests, some Egyptian temple priests, were involved in writing these papyri because this language appears on it. Some of them would have been professional magicians performing these spells for clients. We see a lot of references to clients. This was a magic that was done for other people, often for money. And the, um, and one of the interesting things when reading these texts as well is some of these practitioners were obviously absolute geniuses, who magical adepts who had brilliant ideas, doing really innovative, interesting things with magic. Some of them weren't. Some of them clearly had absolutely no idea what they were doing, and you get some really weird stuff coming out as a result, but I think that's great. It's great fun. And of the work of a magician today looking to use these texts, is sorting through what's good and what's not. The Talking about sort of, before, before we come to the end of the history side of it, the other important thing to remember is it's the, not just there's Egyptian magic in there, but there's also Greek magic, so it's written in Greek, and there's also magic from other areas as well. The biggest other influence on the text is Jewish magic. So you will see the names Yahweh, uh, Sabaoth, uh, Donai, Elohim, etc., appearing in these texts, these Jewish names of God. And whilst the techniques of the magic aren't Jewish, the uh, the, God, the God names and angels that you see in these spells often are. But you'll often see these God names alongside Anubis, Horus, Osiris, Zeus, Aphrodite, whoever. They all kind of get lumped in and thrown in together. So to sum that up, it's a, these texts are a collection that span over 700 years, Written probably by temple priests and other magical professionals, some of whom were brilliant, some of whom were idiots, and they show a huge range of influences from a number of cultures, mostly Greek, Egyptian, and Jewish. So that's, that's the Greek magical pyre in a nutshell.
0: Awesome. <laughs> Definitely a lot to digest there.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's that that, that is the the heavy the heavy history part. That's the bit sort of just to introduce it at the end of the way. I've got the there's more there's um I suppose the the thing that there the would be interesting the really interesting stuff looking at these texts now for um magical petitioners is how magic in these texts work because so and there's some things in magic in here which will i think surprise some people coming to magic today and some which which some some things which seem quite familiar and i suppose one of the first things to think about with this magic is what it was being worked for so those of you out there who practice magic today will probably have come across spells and rituals that are less focused on practical goals and more on spiritual development. So you do, I don't know, uh, the, L- the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, or you do, uh, I don't know, meditation or prayer or sort of just, but general magical practices that you do to develop yourself spiritually rather than to do anything concrete. And so that's fantastic. That really wasn't the kind of magic that was being done at this time. So most of the magic you get in the PGM is, um, Sorry, you'll hear me refer to them as the PGM. That's the shorthand. PGM stands for Papyri Graica Magici. It's the Latin name for the corpus, and it just means Greek Magical Papyri, but it's shorter. So if you hear me say PGM, that's what I'm talking about. So anyway, in the PGM, the magic is mostly for practical purposes. And it's interesting because some of the rituals can have immense spiritual value. For example, there is a rite where you invoke the god Hermes, and that's the god of messengers and wisdom, and you invoke the god Hermes into yourself and identify your soul with him and make him one with your soul. Now, many magical practitioners today would think that's amazing. I'm going to do that just because I want to have oneness with Hermes. That seems like an amazing thing to do. But then actually, when you look at the spell, it's to help or income into a shop. So it's, 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 a, it's a commerce spell. It's a spell to help um, somebody sell lots of things in their shop and get their business off the ground. And so immediately you see that even if the rituals have spiritual value, there is a they're, they're firmly practical. The other um, thing, interesting thing is about how sort of, the gods are treated. So I've talked about how they're, they're called in for sort of some menial things. Not o- They're not only not just treated as gods. They're often threatened. The gods are threatened. They're demons to be feared, bound and controlled. Um, and a lot of the spells threaten the gods with curses and terrible things happening to them if they don't do what the uh, magician says. And this might sound weird to us today, but actually that was mostly how greek religion worked most folk greek religion wasn't about worshiping the gods it was about getting the gods to leave you alone perhaps do what you wanted or if you were a magician getting them to do what you wanted them to do it's uh, interesting i was when well, i was looking at the um, i'm sure many of the listeners here will be familiar with the uh, the hex the moon tiktok controversy which may or may not have happened
0: oh my god the hexing the moon the amount of messages i've gotten about that guys no
1: it was yeah i mean it was it was it was hilarious <laughs> but actually there was I was someone point mentioned it and I was like, actually, that's a good point. The That kind of magic does have precedent in the Greek magical papyri. So you would have, um, you would do things where you would threaten the gods with being chained up and sent to Tartarus and um, threaten spirits with being um, destroyed by their gods. And there are ones where the magician threatens, I think there's one where he threatens to... Um, Make the sun um, go down and not come back up if the gods don't do what he wants, and so on. And it's a um, and so that idea of actually being like threatening and cursing higher powers actually does have a ancient precedent. Now, I'm not saying a that A a I'm not recommending it, and b I'm not saying that's what the TikTok witches were doing. But it is amusing to think that actually it's not too far off something that once would have gone on.
0: That's true. You know, though I will say, everyone's asking about these TikTok witches hexing the moon and hexing the fae and hexing the sun. I got to tell you guys, I think that is the absolute biggest rumor. Like, I don't think it's true because people started saying that TikTokers were doing that. But when I went to go look for any sort of proof, and I even asked people on my social media pages, hey, show me the TikTok where this happened. I got like one dude saying that he did it, but his profile was created. Like a day or two after people started saying that he hexed the moon, and I'm like, well, obviously he's in it for the clout. Like this is fake. No, like I'm. I I just think it was like some people were like, let's just start a rumor, and then it just grew into this big thing. And I'm like, oh my god, guys, like calm down, that's fine.
1: <laughs> I I think you're right. I, I don't I don't think it happened, but I just it was the what amused me was the accidental way in which uh, something with ancient magical precedent actually um, was referenced. It was the um, I thought that was quite funny. So. We've talked talked about how these are treated and the the magic is very practical. There is an exception, actually, to these rites um, in the Greek Magical Pirate, and these are the mystery rites. Um, And some scholars have suggested that maybe these don't fit into the corpus because they are not concerned with practical magic, but they're there. So, you've got to, and it's the, and they were clearly a part of the working notes of these magicians. And the, there are three of these mystery rites in the papyri. There's, there's the Mithras liturgy, um, which actually has nothing to do with the god Mithras. People get very excited and think, oh, it's a secret Mithras ritual. Because we, we're not supposed to know anything of what they did. It's, it's, sadly, it's not a Mithras ritual, though. that would be really cool if it was. Uh, his name gets mentioned once and one scholar decided to call it the Mithras liturgy, which is unhelpful. There's also the 8th Hidden Book of Moses and the 10th Hidden Book of Moses. And these both, all three of these are is their initiation rituals. Um, and their purpose is to bring the initiate into communion with a deity um, for the purpose of their spiritual transformation. And it's it's interesting because these come up with in the same papyri as spells for finding love and making shops work and so on. And it begs the question: Why are these here? And the answer seems to be that in mysteries and magic have always gone hand in hand. If you're a if you're someone who likes magic, you like casting spells, you like um, invoking gods and causing cool shit to happen. You probably are also interested in the mysteries, in the spiritual transformation that can be brought about by the interaction with deity. It's certainly what draws many people to seek out traditions, uh, modern mystery traditions like Gardnerian Wicca. And so and I think that remains true, well, it's true today and it was true back then, that many of these people were magicians and initiates of the mysteries. and. That kind of links in something which I meant to say at the beginning, that um, the so you see that there's a, sort of these diverse texts. I mentioned that these are the working notes of magicians. So if you got if you bought the copy of the Greek magical papyri in translation by Hans Dias Betts and thought that you were going to find a collection of system of Greek magical papyri that you, sorry, a system of Greek magic or Egyptian magic that you can just start working with. Unfortunately that's not what you'll find. Um, these are they are a collection of working notes, a collection of spells. These are the kind of things that people were scribbling down in their personal workbooks, um, or some or a scribe had gone round and asked all their magical friends for like a, a, their favourite spell and written it down. And um, the papyri has got lost over the centuries, and then it's been they've sort of been reconstructed and put back together by these scholars. So you're not dealing with a concrete system of magic. This is not a um, thing where if you start here and end here, you'll get these results. It's a Collection of spells and ideas and techniques, which as a modern magician you have to sift through and find the bits that you want to work with um, and that you think you can use. It's not actually as scary as it sounds. It's quite doable. I'll talk and uh, I'll talk a bit later about how these, which you might want to start doing that. The first I want to there's a there's a couple of routes um, I want to go down. The um, do you actually would you like me to talk about the role of the magic in history or would you like me to of this or would you like to, sort of in the history of western magic or would you like me to talk about the how the magic works in the pyri or do you want to talk about the gods Ooh.
0: I, I would say people would probably be most interested in how the magic works okay let's do how the magic works then awesome
1: the um so you're looking at the spells in the group pyri um one of the first things to realize is this is a um a spirit-based system of magic Um, And the scholar and occultist um, Stephen Skinner, whose brilliant book, Techniques of Greco-Egyptian Magic, I recommend to anyone who wants to look in more detail, he defines magic in the papyri as follows. Magic is the art of causing change through the agency of spiritual creatures rather than via directly observable means. Such spiritual creatures being compelled or persuaded to assist by the use of sacred words or names or talismans, etc, etc. So basically... Way these spells work is by getting spirits to do what you want. Um, it all hinge on invoking spirits to achieve the magicians' goals. Now, this is actually in contrast to where a lot of the magic we as modern witches do today. So, um in sort of the, sort of the early modern period, you see natural magic developing just by the, the likes of Agrippa and Massadio Ficino. And in those systems, you get objects such as plants and gemstones have their own power that we can be manipulated by magician. So herbal magic, crystal magic, magic with herbs and crystals, like most witches do today. And then in this sort of the 19th, 20th century, with an influence from the East, um, you start to see this idea that we have a innate spiritual power within us, this witch power, chi, whatever you want to call it, this power within your body that we can raise and direct to cast spells. And this energy-based natural magic is how most modern forms of witchcraft work. But this is not the way magic in the ancient papyri work in the papyri um the object objects and people don't have any power of their own um rather they're considered to be sacred to different entities and you use these objects to invoke the spirits. so a magician is not someone with great power what a magician is is someone who can basically persuade compel con argue browbeat the spirits into doing what he wants Um, sometimes the magician in the rituals will claim great power for himself. He will say, I will make the sun go down. I will make the sun uh, vanish in the sky. I will raise up the dead or whatever if so-and-so spirit doesn't do this. The idea is that the magician is claiming power for himself that he may not necessarily have because actually he needs the spirits to do the work for him. Um, And it's all just a bit of posturing. Um, Magical, spiritual posturing, but posturing nonetheless. And the thing that I think a lot of people take uh, need to be aware of when they first come to these texts. That if you're going to work, this, want to work with this kind of magic, you need to be prepared to start working with spirits and to understand that they have agency in this magic and that you need to be aware of them. That's not to say that you need to be able to conjure up spirits into a triangle and do all sorts of, and like be able to sort of see spirits perfectly and be a magical adept who is able to commune with the spirit realms. If you start doing the spells, you're going to get the attention of the spirits. But it's just be aware that they are the key element within this system. The um, more famous, sort of more modern context systems of working with the this is sort of, of course, the grimoire tradition, the medieval grimoires. And any of you who have any familiarity with those, you'll see a lot of Greek magical papyri in them, or a lot of them in the Greek magical papyri. Because the um, both Stephen Skinner and Drake Stratton Kent, uh, these two occult scholars, have shown convincingly that the PGM is the ancestor of the grimoire tradition. And even systems that use energy and natural magic they, we owe a debt to the grimoires. Like, the grimoires had a huge influence on Wicca and other magical traditions. And so if, they, if we owe a debt to the grimoires, we in turn owe a debt to the PGM. And that's what Ashley meant at the beginning by these textual influencing practitioners today. They are the ancestors of the grimoires, and so therefore the, the ancestors of us modern practitioners. And you see loads of things in the PGM that you would see later in the um, grimoires. So you would see you see things like child mediums, which appear in the grimoires quite a lot. So the idea of invoking spirit into a child so they can sort of speak the spirit. This is the threatening spirits, the binding of spirits, the using of divine names to control them. I bind you in the names of Adonai, Elohim, whatever, that kind of thing. That starts here. So it is the ancestor of much the way that we do magic today. So I suppose we've talked a lot, talked a little bit about the way the magic works, where this has all come from. I suppose it's probably time to look at a spell. So why don't I (laughs) read a little bit of a spell to you and talk a little bit about it.
0: And um,
1: before I go on to the spell, I just want to talk about this is about, this spell I think demonstrates the way some of the strange ways in which the, these magicians approached the gods, and it draws mostly on Egyptian gods. And I'll, I'm going to read a bit to you, and then we'll talk, I'll talk a little bit about it. So, so this is an extract from um, PGM4, so the fourth papyrus, lines 3125 to 71. Okay. truck Etruscan wax, mould a statue three handbreadths high. Let it be three-headed. Let the middle head be that of a sea falcon, right the baboon left of an ibis let it have four extended wings and its two arms stretched on its breast in them it should hold a scepter and let it be wrapped as a mummy like osiris let the falcon wear the crown of horus the baboon wear the crown of hermanubis and let the ibis bear the crown of isis so this is the instruction for creating a magical statue okay And it's used to help um, bring uh, business into a location and a space. And I really love the spell because it is, and because what it does is it syncretizes three or actually more than three different gods. And syncretism is the process where gods are combined. So if you look at the ancient world, you you often get get Thoth Hermes, for example, the Egyptian and the Greek god, meshed together as one. And there's this idea that the gods are often linked to each other and Gods are combined to create a new one. And that's a very common thing you see throughout the ancient world. And um, you see it, in, see it in a particularly extreme example in this spell. So, in this statue, you've got the spell, the statue has three heads. First one is a falcon. Now, it's fairly easy to see where a falcon comes from. This represents the god Horus. Horus was the Egyptian god of war and kingship. Um, and we, this is, this reading is confirmed by him being given the crown of Horus. Then the ibis wears the crown of Isis. Which is slightly weird, as ibis is, and ibis is a, an Egyptian bird. Um, they have a sort of kind of, kind of similar to a stork. Well, I'm not really a biologist. It's the they're a um it's an Egyptian bird, long beak, and um, they're usually associated with the god Thoth, who was the god of writing and magic. But here, rather than be associated with Thoth, it's given the crown of Isis, I mean, most of us will know, the sort of cosmic sort of goddess magic. Um, and Isis, as is a goddess of magic, her inclusion in the spell is unsurprising because if you're doing magic, Isis likes to get in on that. And then finally, the baboon is crowned with the crown of Hermanubis. So, Hermanubis is a very interesting god. Um, Hermannubis, it's, you might the perceptive monks, you might realise that's a mixture of the names Hermes, the Greek god of messengers, wisdom, etc., on trade, in the spell. And um, also the god. Anubis, the Egyptian god of mummification and the sort of guide to the underworld. Um, And so both Hermes and Anubis are psychopomps. They're both spirits that guide us to the underworld and guide the spirit to the dead. Um, And so what happened in this period was the Egyptians and the Greeks they went, right, we've got two gods, both of whom are good at talking and working with the dead. Let's stick them both together and we've got the perfect god for speaking to the dead. And you end up with Anubis, And He's a quite a popular god in the PGM, uh, and he had a small but significant following in the period when these texts were written. Um, if you're interested in working with him, Gordon White in his book Chaos Protocols is quite a good um, ritual for starting doing that. So, um, go back, back to the spell. So, the um, significance in that the Hermenubis crown put on a baboon-headed god, because the baboon was sacred to Thoth, who was the Egyptian god of writing magic, as I said. Thoth was equated with Hermes, so you have that. Tr- you have a triple syncretisation of Thoth, Hermes, Herb, Anubis, and it just gets. So you've got, you've got basically you've got three gods. With you've got three gods. You've got Horus. You've got Hermes. You've got Anubis. all three. You've got uh, four or five. Um, you've got um Isis, um Horus, Isis, Anubis, Hermes, and Thoth. So that's five, and um, you've got all these five gods combined in one statue. Um. And the and then the spell gets even weirder when you look at the invocation that's used in this spell. So once you've made the magical statue, you address an invocation to it. In this invocation, this is where we've already had five gods mixed into one, and then we just get a whole truckload more. So give me all favour, all success for the angel bringing good, who stands behind the goddess Taiki with you. Accordingly, give profit and success to this house. Please, Ion, ruler of hope, giver of wealth, O oh, holy Agathos Daimon, bring to fulfilment all favours and your divine oracles. So, this is a, a it's, it's it's an interesting one because we've got again it tells us what the spell's for. So give profits and success to this house. Um, the word house is it could mean it could be a temple it could be a shop it could be a house it doesn't really matter it's the idea is that any space that's bring wants money brought into it this is the spell for that and the then you've got all these beings mentioned so you've got Tyche, who is the goddess of um, sort of fate and justice you've got um, Ion the which is just the god of everything you've got the Agathos Daimon which is sort of personification of goodness and good luck and you've got all of these beings being um, brought in together. And we have mixed with these five gods all combined in one statue. And it's all a bit bizarre because one of the things you'll probably just see when you start uh, practicing magic and reading up on it is that most modern practitioners tell you not to mix gods. Be sensitive to the gods you're working with. Keep them, like, make sure, research to make sure they're, they work together, have like, good relationships with each other. Don't just invoke gods from different pantheons in willy-nilly. These magicians evidently had not got that memo. Um, it was a... They would... The, secretor- the syncretism, the mixing, just got completely mental, and it got, it gets particularly mental in this spell. Um, and I personally, my reading of this, this, this is a spell for prosperity, and so it almost feels like the magician is just hedging their bets and asking for help from any god that could possibly be useful. And it's up to you, really. Some some people look at this and think, oh, there's something quite brilliant going on here, and I think there is, uh, there is some nuanced magic happening here. Also, I think maybe this is one of the less, I, this could be one of the less good spells in the papyri where the practitioner wasn't, didn't entirely understand the powers with which he was working. And maybe a little unfair, a syncretism throughout the papyri is quite common. And I think this has bears interesting, um, interesting sort of consequences and food for thought for modern practitioners. Because as like I said, today we tend to try to avoid mixing our gods and equating gods from different cultures with each other. It was very popular back in the day when Crowley was writing seven, seven, seven and whatnot, and putting everything on the tree of life for no good reason. But the it's a lot of a lot of people are uncomfortable with that now, and quite rightly, I think it can get bound up in issues of cultural appropriation and so on. Also, aside from that, a lot of people tend to be of the sort of the more polytheistic persuasion, the hard polytheist view that the gods are. Separate distinct beings, and that it's not un- contrary to what Fortune said, it's not all one goddess, all not all goddesses are one goddess, and not all gods are one god. Whilst I don't think the Greeks and Egyptians did believe that, I don't think they did believe all gods are one god, they certainly had a much more fluid view of the gods than perhaps some hard polytheists have today. Certainly the magicians did, anyway. In, if you look in the early period, when the early Ptolemaic periods, so are when the Greeks had sort of invaded um, Egypt. There's a letter from Egyptian priests of Isis, they're, they're, but they're writing it to the Pharaoh, who was Greek. So they're writing this letter in Greek, and they are priests of Isis, but they refer to Isis as Aphrodite. So clearly, even the priests of these gods viewed the names as almost sort of, sort of, sort of synonymous. And then a few hundred years later, with um, Apuleius' The Golden Ass on the Metamorphoses, which is a little book that you can, in translation from Penguin, it's brilliant. But in this point, there's a bit where Isis appears and she gives a long list of goddess names that she's known to by other cultures I am, Hecate, Demeter, Persephone, etc. Which you'd see in later texts like the ch- modern texts like The Charge of the Goddess. And this idea of syncretism, of mixing gods, came really, really prominent in the Hellenistic period. So that's um, after Alexander the Great, because basically he invaded everywhere up to all the way up to India and then um, and then the um, so all sort of Europe and Asia and then he died and the empire fragmented and you end up with lots of kings in bits but what had happened was the Greeks following their leaders and kings had spread out all over the world and they brought their gods with them but when they brought their gods with them they encountered local ones and so rather than just sort of setting up separate temples they stuck Otherwise, they stuck two gods in the same temple. Otherwise, they just stuck two gods together. And they say, well, your river god looks a lot like this version of Zeus. So we're going to have Zeus and the river god as one god. And there are thousands and thousands of examples of this if you want to dig into it. And, I mean, the Romans did it too. I mean, you see it in Britain with Bath, um, the famous town that was full of Roman baths. And the goddess there was known to the Celts as Sulis. Romans turned up and went, that looks like our goddess Minerva. Call her Sulis Minerva. And, um... It happened right on the level of like just ordinary people, roadblocks in the streets, find links linking the gods together. Right, to happening for political reasons as well. So the um, the Ptolemies, which is the Greek pharaohs, promoted the cult of Serapis, which was a Egyptian, and, a, Egyptian and Greek sort of syncretic deity, um, and they promoted that for political reasons. So it happens for all sorts of reasons, and it the there are some scholars who go so far as to argue that the neatly defined gods of the classical age, so that of Zeus being Zeus, Hera being Hera, Dionysus being Dionysus, and them all being different gods, that only really existed in the whitewashed intellectual poetry and sculpture. In poems like the Metamorphoses and the Iliad, which we, where we get a lot of ideas of the gods and myths from, see that. Actually, in the religious practice that was happening on the ground, the idea of who these gods were was a lot more fluid. So, and I think that has very interesting implications for modern pagans and witches. And I'm not saying not, I'm absolutely not telling you what to believe. You must find your own understanding of who the gods are to you. If indeed you work with gods, to find any meaning in that, I think it is worth considering, if you're working with ancient magic, how ancients themselves evidently viewed them. Yeah, that's that's the that's sort of, that's the gods. I think we've talked. I think actually, agree. You'll agree. We've talked about some quite heavy stuff. So I think I might just a uh, give a have a little um interlude by talking about one of the stranger parts of the papyri, which I think you'll all find quite funny.
0: Um, oh gosh, I'm excited. <laughs>
1: the um, which are, I call them the joke spells, and the um, because you have got this strange situation where um the you've got all these papyri with these brilliant spells, and one of these fantastic papyri is the PGM seven, the seventh papyrus in the collection, and it's got and that's got some awesome spells in it. There's some really high quality magic in that papyrus. Then you get a section called Democritus's table gimmicks which are a long list of practical jokes you can do and they're really quite bizarre and really quite funny and I think I'll share a few of them with you now. So there's first one is to make as one of them called to make an egg become like an apple to so make an egg look like an apple boil the egg and smear it with a mixture of egg yolk and red wine. So you can only imagine that what they've done what you do here is you internet paint, an egg, paint an, an egg to make it look red, tell your mate it's an apple give it to him, watch him eat it and go, ugh, and film it and put it on TikTok. <laughs> and then there's um, there's one that says, to make the chef unable to light the burner. It says, how sleek, plant the stove. Logic apparently being that you can't light the stove if there's a plant pot on it, obviously. Um, there's one uh, that says, um, keep an old woman from either chattering or drinking too much. So this is one one for you, if you've got like an old racist grandparent that you need to make sure behaves themselves at the, at the dinner table. Um, oh, pints, up, pints up some pine and put it in their mixed wine. Apparently, it, it, it curbs the excessive tendencies of racist old people. Apparently, we'll see. Try it out. It? Um, there's another one to make the gladiators painted on the cups fight. So obviously, if you've, if you've ever seen pictures of Greek vases, they've got all these beautiful depictions of gladiators and warriors fighting. And it says, smoke some hare's head underneath them. Hare's head being presumably some kind of drug. So basically, get high and it will look like the pictures on your cups are fighting.
0: Oh, my um, God. <laughs> yeah.
1: Then there's, there's one for the introverts. Um, To let those who have difficulty intermingling, so socializing, perform well. Um, give gum mixed with wine and honey to be smeared on the face. Smear wine, honey, and gum on your face, and you will no longer be shy. Good to go. Interesting. Then there's another good one. Um, and, of course, humans. so, of course, in the end it gets a bit blue. Be able to copulate a lot. Grind up fifty tiny pine cones, tiny, mind you. Don't want anyone to think you're compensating with two <laughs> ounces of sweet wine, two pepper grains, and drink it. Apparently, Ew. that will increase one's virility. Now, for the um, for the is that even uh,
0: safe to ingest pine cones like that?
1: <laughs> I have no idea. Don't sue me if it's not good. Don't try. It. I'm not condoning <laughs> you trying this. I'm just sharing what the ancients would have done. They and the final one is um, to get an erection whenever you want. Find a pepper with some honey coat to your and the translator quite uh, sweetly here has written thing inverted commas find <laughs> up a pepper with some honey and coat to your thing now i hope i don't have to tell you that you really don't want to put pepper on your penis um so being... <laughs> that's
0: the quote of the entire show right there <laughs>
1: <laughs> and i think the you can just imagine that um someone's come up with this and there's their mates come up to them. oi mate right Know you're a wizard right so, look, I've been having a bit of problem in the bedroom. The missus isn't very happy. I just need some help, you know? He says, don't worry, mate. I've got you covered. Says, look, look at this. Ancient, this is an ancient spell that I found in some ancient text. <laughs> Try this. Of course, his mate does it. Gets a very sore willy. And then everyone laughs at him. Um,
0: yeah, and I, but- I can only imagine, I, you know, I I would not want a honey and pepper coated quote-unquote thing to be inside of me
1: no, no <laughs> on, know, the, that, on
0: the opposite end of that so
1: yeah I think it's just a ballad all the way around and I, I think what I love about the this bit of the papyri is it's been so many people look at to these papyri going right this is a tome of ancient magic that is that is they they, they romanticize it they give they they put these texts up on its pedestal of being these fonts of amazing wisdom and in some respects, they are. In some respect, there is some absolutely brilliant magic in these texts. There's also, but it also just shows that these people were human beings. They were not sort of strange, up, up there, high adepts. They were ordinary people like you and me who enjoyed a good joke. And the... Um, that's a slightly cruel one in this case. And I mean, in the most total sense, if you look at like, the likes of Alistair Crowley and whatnot, and who has got up to all sorts of no good, it's the magicians have always had a bit of a dickhead streak. And I think that's no... As clear, no, no more apparent even um than in this bit here, and I think that's a general piece of advice: is with uh, if you're looking at these texts, is discerning and be and appreciate that these are not always the fonts of wisdom. These are tr- working notes of a magician with some b- bits, some silly bits, and some stupid bits, and you've got to work through that yourself. But yeah, that's that; those are the joke calls, and I love them to pieces.
0: I, I remember it was like this Tumblr post going around. And I, I, I don't think it's from the papyri, but it was some like ancient spell book that was in a museum or something. And it was a rain spell. And uh, apparently back, back in the ancient times for the rain spell, you pretty much, you walked outside with a bucket full of water and then you dumped it on the ground. And then you essentially looked up at the sky and just started yelling at it saying, see, this isn't so difficult. Why can't you do this?
1: <laughs> I've seen that. Way. I think it's brilliant. It's, it's exactly the kind of thing they would do. That's, that's exactly Oh right. yeah.
0: So, yeah, you know what? Sometimes the best magic is just the most simple. <laughs>
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: You know, yeah. you challenge the elements, and sometimes they'll uh, they'll challenge you back. Uh, uh,
1: completely, they will. They really will. Um, mm-hmm. So I suppose um, I suppose the question that's may- going to be on many people's minds is how we use these texts if we're um, magical practitioners today. Probably there's. Some some people look at these texts and they're quite overwhelmed with the um, sort of the amount of maybe history they might think they need to know, or the fact that it's translated from Greek and so on, and or the fact that it's not a ready-to-use system handed to you on a plate like you get in some books. But actually, if you're willing to have a bit of a, if you're willing to be ch- to challenge yourself and have a bit of a dig and um, try some interesting things, then actually. You can really get somewhere with these texts, and first of all, let's—I want to talk about a couple about some of the issues you might encounter once you once you start, once you get over your initial phobia of "Oh my god, this looks scary!" and give it a go. There are a few issues that usually come up, and here are some of my, in my opinion, solutions. So, the first one is difficult ingredients. So, there's one that involves having a severed wolf's head. Don't know about you, I don't have one of those lying around. You might do. Don't know. I, I don't. And so, what do we do when we come up with the difficult ingredients? So, well, some purists will tell you that you must replicate the spells as closely as possible. They'll say if it's, they'll say if you're not willing to go and get all the difficult ingredients, that you're not a proper magician. someone nah. no tried to tell me that on the Facebook group, and I probably told them to sod off. The um, because it's, it's really not true. Um, it is true that like in cooking, um, some, so, like making substitutions will may alter the flavour of the magic slightly, but magic is fluid; it's not chemistry. You can absolutely make substitutions if you know. But what's important is that you understand why you're making that substitution. It's not just out of sort of laziness. It's it's the okay. I'm making this decision to change this ingredient for this because for whatever reason I can't obtain that ingredient, but I think this ingredient will have a similar impact on the spell that I'm doing and be similarly pleasing to the spirit. And there are a number of ways you can check that. I mean, you can look at you can go down the scholarly route of researching, I don't know, uh, sort of food prohibitions in ancient Egypt, which I once did for a day. The, um, all or you can you can do is just use your understanding of magic. And if you're not sure, check in with the spirits. Get a pendulum, get out your tarot, or whatever else you like to talk to spiritual powers and ask them, saying, "Will you accept this instead?" And see what they say. It's always worth always worth just asking. And there, but there are plenty of spells that actually use ingredients that are readily available from most good occult supply shops. The other issue, which is sort of the wolf's head thing links into, is animal sacrifice. So, animal sacrifice is a tricky one because I am not opposed to it in principle. I eat meat. But we are, I strongly believe that we, most of us in this culture, do not know how to do it properly. There are traditions that do, there are many wonderful traditions, magical traditions that do, uh, have people who are trained in how to do this humanely and properly. So many African diaspora religions, for example, most of us practicing modern witchcraft not have that skill set. And so I think it fairly rules out um, animal sacrifice, because you can do perfectly effective magic and do plenty of spells from Pirate without it. And I think if you're just doing it to be edgy and for the aesthetic, that's not a good reason to kill anything. And also many magical practitioners just are opposed to killing animals full stop. They're, They're vegan or vegetarian or whatever, and that's also completely valid. So aware that you will encounter several spells that do condone animal cruelty. Um, so this is one spell that involves drowning a falcon in milk, um, for example. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, when well, that's because the reason for that is um, drowning um, was in the, in the River Nile was believed to sort of deify, well drowning, full stop, was believed to sort of deify a person undergoing it, and the falcon becomes a receptacle for a, for a divine spirit which you invoke. There's a theological magical reasoning for it, but nonetheless, drowning animals, bad, bad form really. So the Something to be aware of, that you will encounter this, but at, to the enterprising magician, there is certainly workarounds. The other one is language. So there was a widespread belief that spells should be said in the language they were originally written in, or they would lose their power. It's a widespread belief in the ancient world. Personally, I've used these spells with great success, and I mostly say them in English, because whilst I can read ancient Greek, my pronunciation's a bit dodgy. Um, so it's easier to do it in, in English. And you certainly don't need to, have to read ancient Greek to use these texts. The only bit where it becomes language becomes important is with something called the voces magicae, literally actually magical voices magic words and these are um most of the spells are made up of and they are nonsense words they are words that have no meaning they're untranslatable and they are then they i mean chaos magicians today theorize that they have t- to help you put in an altered state of consciousness or whatever maybe maybe they do that that's not what the ancient the Greek the ancients would have said would if they are would be to be secret names of spirit the names of gods and spirits and powers and listing out, listening out these secret names gives you power over those entities so for and sometimes these names will be written out and be spoken out loud sometimes they will be written down so here for example is an invocation to the goddess the waning moon and the um words go like this forba 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 forba, 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 forba. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that and sounds will, like a huge
0: tongue twister.
1: It's a bit of a tongue twister. So I would, if, you, if you're going to do one of these spells, <laughs> I suggest you practice your pronunciation before you do the spell. And those, I would say, always keep. If you're doing a spell and you absolutely use the English translations given by bets, you might want to do them up because they're not very good translations. Then... Keeping the vokas eye, because to the ancients that's where the power was really considered to be, and I think there is something. I can tell you for experience, there is something very um, powerful about standing in a room full of incense, chanting these names. It, the, magi- the chaos magicians are right; it certainly gets you to a magical mindset, and the spirits like it too. So these issues, so these sort of talk about some sort of these sorts of problems and issues you might encounter, but all of these are surmountable. And so when you've got these texts, you can use them as a source of techniques for techniques and inspiration. So say you want to do a Hecate spell or something, you can go and you can look at the spells of Hecate in here, which are loads. If you love Hecate, you must read the Greek magical papyri because there is so much on her in here. And I talk about I will read you a little extract from one of those spells in a minute. But you can use the well, the way I certainly work with them is I go, right, what do I want to do? Okay, what, where do they, how do they do it in the papyri? What can I take from this? What can I use? What am I not going to use? So for example, um, I was recently working on a ritual to ensoul my god statues. So statue ensoulment was a common practice in the um, ancient world, linked to sort of Neoplatonism and theogy, which a sort of magical philosophical school, and um, where you invoked a god into a statue and made it their home so that you could then engage with the, with the deity through the medium of the statue. Uh, it, was, it was a central magical practice, and I was like, right, I want to do this with my gods. So I, um, well, the gods I was working with were not um, Greco-Egyptian gods, but I thought, well, I'm going I'm to mine the tech, so to speak, so I looked in. I looked in books on Theology, um, which the tradition does this often. I looked in. I looked at um, various statue installment rites. They all said, look. They all said they claimed inspiration from the Greek magical piri. I hadn't thought of the first look and I went, of course, look at them. That makes so much sense. So I went back to them and I went, say, well, where do these rituals actually come from? And there are several rituals for creating magical statues in the PGM. We looked at one of them earlier. One for whether you combine all the gods into one to. Um, Uh, attract money into a shop they're all for specific purposes like bring prosperity they're all using specific gods they all make use of animal sacrifice so i was like well i know which gods i want to do it's not these ones know what my purposes are and they aren't the same purposes and i'm not going to do animal sacrifice so how can i adapt this so i went through and i um, read all the statue spells and identified the key techniques that kept cropping up and these were writing names of power on papyri and putting it on under the statue that's right i can do that one I don't have to use papyrus because they only use papyrus because that was the paper they had. Could it just easily use any other paper? So, use the paper. Um, a making sacrifices to the statue. Luckily, my my deity does not demand autumn sacrifice, so I was thought of other traditional offerings that I could make instead. Then there are petitions written, were written on the statue. I already had my statue. I wasn't making it from scratch. So I said, right, well that's fine. I will. Inc- I'll write mine. And paper with words of power that I can maybe wrap around the statue or put beneath it, and then finally, the statue is made from materials linked to the deity. So, if you, um, for example, the so this I mean the spell we read earlier talked about Etruscan wax that was a particularly good quality kind of wax, and other spells involve various herbal and animal bits that you stick in to mix in with the clay or the wax that you're using to basically make the statue align with the deity. So, what I did was I well I made as I already had a statue, I um, created an bill. From material sacred to the deity and anointed the statues with it actually with it and that actually has precedent in one of the spells in the papyri because that is something that happens in one of the spells then there's an interesting thing crops up in a couple where the sacrifice so the bird so usually a bird and this is coming back to the animal cruelty thing unfortunately the bird is strangled in order to give their breath to the statue and obviously i was like i wasn't going to start strangling any pigeons so what i decided to do was i turned instead to that concept of giving breath and the, um, the Jewish tradition and the Kabbalistic tradition of the breath of life, and the. is in keeping because Jewish magic has such an influence on the papyri. Perhaps better to say the papyri had such an influence on Jewish magic. So I used it, using my own breath of life to breathe into the statue and enliven it. Whilst I won't talk much, as much as I'm mostly wanting to talk about my own magical, that magical working, I can say it worked very, very well. The statue didn't get up and walk around. There was a, I had an incredibly intense encounter with the divinity between whom I was working. So I would recommend Statue Insolment. If you're interested in it, go. It's a practice. Awesome. <laughs> the, another spell, a spell that, for those of you, I mentioned Hecate earlier. And there's a brilliant spell in the papyri that actually is the. If you're interested in doing it, I would re- totally recommend. I mean, I'll give you the reference for it now. I might be. Um, and I mean, you'll be able to find it online. And it's um, pgm for 2785 to 2890. Uh, And it's the prayer to Selene for any spell, Selene being the goddess of the moon. And the spell actually is largely an invocation to Hecate, because Hecate and Selene are syncretised and basically treated as the same being. And those of you out there who enjoy working with her abilities of Hecate, as many modern witches are, then if you haven't tried this spell then you absolutely must. It is a long invocation to Hecate that draws upon all her different aspects, both her beautiful and her terrifying and syncretised it with a number of different things. So uh, it goes, Come to me, O beloved mistress, three-faced Selene, kindly hear my sacred chants. Night's ornament, young, bright, light to mortals, O child of the morn who rides upon fierce bulls. O queen who drives your car on equal course with Helios, that's the sun, who with the triple forms, formed Hecate, of triple graces, dancing revels with the stars. You're, you are justice, and the Moira, that's the um, fate's threads, Clotho and Lachesis and Atropos, you are three-headed. your Persephone, Megaira, electo You have many formed. You arm your hands with dreaded murky lamps. You shake your locks with fearful serpents on your brow. Um, you sound the roar of balls out from your mouth. Your womb is decked with the scales of creeping things, with poisonous rows of serpents down the back, bound down your back with horrifying chains. You've got that really horrifying bit, then you've got this bit, lovely night-cryer, poor-faced, loving solitude, all-headed. And You get these, um, and then she's called the Mother of Gods and Men and Nature, Mother of All Things. You are the beginning and the end. You alone rule all. So she gets treated as the she gets called treated like a fierce evil demon, or described as such. She's um, synchronized with the Fates, with the Furies, but she's also described as the beautiful moon, as the as the Mother of All Creation, the Supreme Goddess, as Nature herself. And the and that might seem paradoxical. I suppose it is. But the first, when I first encountered these texts, that confused me. I thought, well, how do I really want to call on the negative aspect of the goddess. I think what they understood better than perhaps I did and many do, that gods are paradoxical. They are not not sort of sort of mono sort of 2D archetypes you can fit into a. box. They define, defy all or um, definition and categorization. So they both, they, if you are to call upon Hecate and truly. Access her power. You must appreciate both the terrifying and the beautiful within her. Um, and what's lovely is the spell is in, a sec- in effect. All it is, it's a got a. It gives you. An, it gives you this long invocation, a protective um, charm to wear, because in this magic you always wear a protective charm, because um, gods and spiritual as dangerous. You always wear a protective charm when you are doing this kind of magic. The which again is a, something you don't usually see in modern witchcraft today, but I think we often. Tend to believe that gods and spirits have our best intention, our best intentions at heart, and if we have good intention, intention is everything. All be fine. This is a system of magic where intention really is not everything. The gods and spirits couldn't give less of a damn about your intention. Um, you need to. The will if you screw it up, they'll fuck you up. It's just that's just kind of what they do. At least that's certainly the belief behind these texts. So, if you are working with this, some form of protection definitely I uh, recommended, and some rituals give specific ones. There is also in here I can't remember the reference a a general protective um, talisman that you can make as well for these rites. Um, so and the gives one of these, and it also gives an incense for the spell for doing good. Um, there's a the which is storax, myrrh, sage, frankincense, and a fruit pit, which is all stuff you can get from any metaphysical shop. Um, I think I've got all of those in my herd box, so you can this spell is brilliant if you want it gives you an incense it gives you an invocation a protective talisman which you can then adapt and use in your devotional and magical work with Hecate. So I just have a
0: quick question. Uh, So if somebody wanted to use that, for example, like get that information, how can they access this?
1: So the Greek Magical Papyri in in Translation is a book. Um, You can get copies of it online, but the best way is to get the physical copy from any good magical bookshop or indeed Amazon or or Anywhere, really. It's easy to get hold of. It's called the Greek Magical Papyri in Translation by Hans Dieter Betts. Or edited by Hans Dieter Betts. And the, if you're interested in the original Greek, uh, edited by a German man named Karl Preisendans, is available online. You can find that online, long out of copy right now. And um, the, yeah, I would highly recommend getting a copy. The other book that I'd recommend that if you're, because the the Betts copy is not particularly user friendly, because there's a long contents page, but it just lists all the spells in order. And if you're trying to figure out what to find for what, it's a bit of a lucky dip. So, the other book that I would highly recommend is The Techniques of Greco-Egyptian Magic by Stephen Skinner. He gives um, a his- the history and theory of this magic, and then he breaks down, he lists all the different spells by kind of theme and the techniques used in them and the powers called upon and so on. And it's been invaluable. It was an invaluable text to me. It's most useful for me. I personally use it most to help navigate the text so I can help find things quickly in a pinch. He don't always agree with his historical viewpoints, though largely I do. So, but it's a, um, it's a brilliant book so that would be, those, those two books The Greek Magical Requiring Translation and Techniques of Greco-Egyptian Magic, I would say if you're looking to do these spells, those are the texts yeah. to go to, I would also say the brilliant blog as well that I came across the other day um, by this guy called Sam Block who gives, most use, who gives various workings taken from the PGM and most usefully he gives an opening and closing ritual, so if you want a ritual to kind of frame around your spell you can find one of those online as well so there's all sorts of stuff out there for the Enterprising Magician. It just takes a bit of research and a willingness to do a deep dive. I'd highly encourage you to do it. I did a deep dive on these a few years ago. I've never stopped, really. It's, it's great. I'd highly recommend it. Um. So, yeah, I suppose that's kind of... It would, I know we come to an hour now. So the, as i just sort of sum up by emphasising that these are... So the, the Greek Magical Pirate are... They are this um, collection of texts uh, written in Greek and Demotic. With combining Greek ancient Greek and Egyptian and Jewish magic. Some of it's brilliant, some of it's silly, some of it's stupid, and you've got to p but it's not a complete system, you have to pick it out and work with it and research it. Um, the magic is spirit-based, so you have to be prepared to work with spirits. The gods are often syncretized and mixed together. You have to be prepared to take the steps of magical safety by wearing a protective talisman because the belief is not that the gods have your best heart, but that you need to protect yourself from them and approach this carefully. But the magic is actually very accessible and there's all sorts of things in here that any modern magician can do. And if you're, if you think, if you love a bit of ancient magic and you fancy a challenge, I would absolutely recommend getting involved with it.
0: Awesome. You know, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about this topic because I, I've joked about this before how, you know, a lot of people think that when they're getting involved in witchcraft, like it's very just, I'm trying to figure out the best way to phrase this, but it's very easy and just natural and go with the flow. But when you want to kind of go a little deeper with it, witchcraft can be extraordinarily academic. There's a lot of reading involved, a lot of studying, a lot of research. And it doesn't necessarily come off like that when you're first getting involved. But then hearing about topics like this and, you know, how this is influencing magic today. um, I don't know. I I just really appreciate having these more advanced topics so people kind of get a taste of, like, it's not just, you know, this one little book or like this one youtube video there's a lot more that's involved in this if you want to go down that rabbit hole
1: oh yeah it's it's a it's a rabbit hole of many lifetimes and it's the i frequently get overwhelmed by i'm like oh i want to study this and i want to do that and that how can i do all of this at the same time i need to ah uh, i need i need i need more lifetimes but i mean hopefully many magicians believe in reincarnation so if they're right i have got many lifetimes <laughs> but find out when we get there
0: <laughs> yeah yeah just the trick is trying to remember what you knew in the previous lifetime and then going from there to try to apply it to this lifetime
1: yes indeed indeed <laughs> and that therein very a challenge
0: awesome well thank you so much tom for <laughs> giving like such an academic talk i really appreciate this and and i i think you know as i mentioned it, it is definitely an advanced topic but i think it's so great to have something like that on this show and i'm gonna ask you a question i ask everybody at the end so it could be about what you just talked about, or it could be about anything you'd like. But, so if you were talking to a complete beginner, you know, maybe they haven't cast a circle yet or even attempted to spell, anything. If you can give them one piece of advice, what would it be?
1: I would say, and it might sound contrary to what the, sort of the talk I've just given is, don't get overwhelmed by the amount of material <laughs> out there. It, easier said than done. Magic, the only way to learn magic is to do it. I And... Even if you you do your first thing, you go, right, I'm gonna just try and cast a circle, and you feel like a lemon standing there turning around in your room, pointing your finger at the floor, envisaging blue fire coming out of whatever, you it doesn't matter. It's a it's the it's the moment of starting. And I think, yes, there are complex systems of magic that have rules and risks and so on, like the PGM. But the if we're to learn from the example of the PGM, whilst they are there are complex elements and perhaps dangerous elements of it. But also, these people were incredibly creative. They, I, the one of the things when I was studying these spells in depth that I found was how creative the approach of these magicians were. They would take all these different ideas and combine them into one, and to, to, totally new spins on complex philosophical ideas. And so that creativity should start now. So let just get on practicing magic. Ever. it is first simple thing that seems appealing to you and get creative with it because that's the only way you're ever going to learn and who knows you might go on to create something amazing
0: exactly and you know that is definitely a theme whenever I ask people like you know their piece of advice almost everybody says something that relates back to just get up and do something yeah (laughs) I
1: think it's the number one piece of advice
0: yeah I mean you can read about magic all you want But until you actually get up and you practice it, nothing's going to happen. You're not going to improve just simply by reading something. It's like if you're training for a marathon and you read all these tips and tricks online about how to run faster and how to do this and how to do that, unless you actually like get outside and start running or whatever training you're going to do, you're not going to run faster just by reading these books or reading these things online. So it's the same with magic. You have to practice it. You have to see what works. You have to get engaged and get involved and uh, it's extraordinarily important to do exactly
1: this. i mean so in the case of the pgm you an easy one to start with like the hecate spell and just do it just see what happens just go for it and see. there you go yeah and um hopefully some cool shit will happen
0: <laughs> and if not don't get discouraged Absolutely. i mean like, i mean know, I've, I've done
1: So sometimes magic does do cool shit a lot of the time it's like oh that was that was nice it's just yeah, just give it a go and see what happens
0: Yeah. You know, I read this interesting, it was like a meme type thing where it was something like if the gods come every single time that you call them, do you think they're actually coming? And I was like, Ooh, that's interesting. I like reading that.
1: That is interesting. I personally, I think they always do. I just don't think they always come with um, earthquake, wind and fire. I think sometimes they are, it's Mm -hmm. just a sense of a hand on the shoulder or a presence in the room. It is a, I, th- I I, mean, certainly with spirit magic and god magic, I think the advice is if you've done the invocation, so act as if they are there even if you're not sure. Because um, if you have called them and they've showed up and you just haven't picked up on it, then you're going to look a bit lemon. If you go, oh, that didn't work, I'm going to go have a shower now. you got something there like, <laughs>
0: <fuck?"> <laughs> Then the god just sitting in your room like, um, excuse me, act- you, you need to dismiss me. What are you doing? I,
1: so I think always, if you're going to do it, if you're going to do something like this and it, you, even if you don't think anything's happening, blow the process through anyway. It's the um, And as Alice Cody said, invoke often, do it lots, and things will eventually happen.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think that is a good point. Even if you're not sure if something's there, treat whatever spirit or God or energy or elemental, whatever it is that you're trying to call down, treat it with utmost respect, regardless if you think that they're there or not. Because maybe you just can't sense it yet. Yeah, yeah. but you also don't want to piss them off by thinking they're not there Yeah, <laughs> when they very well might be there. I think on the
1: pissing off note, i would mentioned earlier about how there is the threatening and banishing, and so all of gods in these texts. I wouldn't say for beginners, I would say if, you, if you're working in a PGM system and you know what you're doing, fine, but don't just think that's a license to go around ordering the gods about because they are a lot bigger than you.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, just one other way to kind of phrase this, it's kind of like, even if you think that they're not there, you don't sense them. There are so many stories or examples I can give, but like think of it like if you go to a a place that's haunted and your friend sees a ghost, but you don't see a ghost, or vice versa, you see the ghost and they don't see it, kind of the same concept just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Tom, so much for coming on. Please tell me how people can find you if they have questions. Cause I'm sure that they will. Uh,
1: yeah, absolutely. So I'm, um, I'm Tom Macarthur. I'm on Twitter as Tom McArthur. At the moment, that is the only, um, magical online presence that I have in public one anyway. Um, I'm hoping to start a blog soon with a friend, um, which we may call cross country witchcraft, but that has not been put online yet. Who knows Well, something comes out, it may have done, but we'll see. But certainly if you want to find me in anything else that I'm doing magically, you'll find me um, as Tom MacArthur on um, Twitter.
0: Cool. And so with that blog, uh, you know, so we're recording this episode, but I told Tom we're recording it on this day, but it's probably not going to be published for a little bit later. Uh, So if anything changes and you do get that blog post up between now and then, uh, I will update the episode description and then just whenever you get it posted anyway, I will come back and update it even if this is already published. Cause I can apparently do that, which is awesome. cool.
1: That's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> there, that's the other, there might be the other thing that will be up by the time um, this podcast goes up is that I'm doing a talk for the center of pagan studies um, on the Greek magical pyre, which will cover a lot of the stuff we talked about today, but in a lot more depth and we will read through some, I'll be reading through some spells um, to, with, the, with the people and looking at the, um, particular spirits from within the text and so on, and that is gonna be I believe that we put on YouTube, so you'll be able to, with the Center for Pagan studies so you'll be able to find that um as well, YouTube.
0: oh cool yeah I'll, I'll add a I'll add a link to that as well to the episode description if if it's out during the same time, and if not, whenever it comes out, I'll edit yep. Cool. Well, thank you so much again, Tom, for coming on and sharing all this amazing knowledge. Um I again is so happy to have just a more advanced topic. It's really refreshing um and i think that the listeners will be appreciative of that too cuz you know beginner witchcraft 101 can sometimes get repetitive at least you know when you've been doing it for a bit but having just like a topic that's a little bit out of the abnormal realm or something you might not hear just from anybody yeah. <laughs> just like the normal uh pagans online i think this is cool i'm really stoked about it and i hope that everybody listening likes this topic too
1: thank you so much for so. having me
0: Oh, no problem. And to everybody listening, uh, I just want to give a shout out to my Patreon. So the Witchlings, Neophytes, Seekers, and Dedicant. Uh, I just recently got a Dedicant Seeker on Patreon. Holy shit, guys. That's insane. Thank you to that person. I'm really stoked. (laughs) Um, I also want to say, if you want to find me on Facebook, you can find me at Seeking Witchcraft Podcast. It's just like a Facebook like page. I also have a Facebook community group called Witches Seeking Witchcraft please like the question or answer the questions guys. If you're trying to join that, <laughs> and then, uh, you can find me on Twitter at seek witchcraft or on Instagram at seeking witchcraft or on Patreon as seeking witchcraft surprise. <laughs> Everything's just seeking witchcraft except Instagram or Twitter, but that's fine. All right. Well, I will talk to you all soon. Thank you again, Tom, for coming on and we'll chat later. All right. Bye guys.